Well, it, it, it's it's about training when you don't want to train. It's about caring about other players in the team. It's about having a crack in the gym all the time. You know, I don't feel good today. Well, ask those other 17 players if you can take it easy today. And if they say yes, we'll talk about it. <laughs> that was my response. Or you're playing against a guy on the weekend, you think he's lifting 50%. So there's a lot of a lot of things in there that you, and the reactions about team first, that'd be selfish. It's so important. You just got to keep on top, on top of it. But again, as coaches, we've got to lead by example. It's not what we say, it's what we do. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is David Boyle, High Performance Manager of Officiating NRL and our key topic for today's chat is understanding decision making by head coaches and high performance managers in the NRL. It's something that Boyle's done some research on so really looking forward to diving in. Make sure you get the notepads out guys and if you're listening in live feel free to send us through some questions by hitting in the comment section below and we'll find some time at the end of the show but Welcome, Boyley. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Really looking forward to our chat. Pleasure, Jack. For for those that aren't aware of your background, mate, do you mind sort of providing us, I guess, how you got into the industry, your passion for it, and some experiences that you've done along the way? Yeah. So professional sports been my life for the last 42 years. I played for the Rabbitohs. It's a rugby league team in Sydney for 10 years and then worked with six NRL clubs after it as a high performance manager, strength and conditioning. Then I had four years at the Rugby Union, the Australian Rugby Union, and I had 18 years with the Hawks, with the NBL team. And then I think at the last club I was at was Penrith Panthers, and the new coach come in and he said, I quite like your boily, but I'll go with my own staff. And I took up lecturing at ACPE for a while in sports performance. And then four years ago, I took on a role as high performance manager on the dark side, looking after the referees. Oh, very good. That's yeah. a, a nice blend of... All, all sorts of different roles in, in sport, like you said, strength and conditioning, management roles, research, and then now looking after the referees, like you said, the dark side, love that. Highlights, mate, over, over your both playing and, and as well as coaching career, what sort of spring front of mind that you're proud of? Great journey. You know, your, your, your teammates, I finished at South in 91, we're still great mates, the guys I played with, coaches, all along the way. It's just good being around positive people. And you don't know how good it is until you get that opportunity. 42 years later, I'm still doing it. Traveling overseas, lecturing China, India, over in the UK. It's just, it's been a great trip. I'm very blessed. Uh, very good. And what about significant challenges, obviously, in elite high performance sport? There, there comes pressure. I mean, what have been some significant challenges that you faced along the way? And sort of what did you learn? How did you sort of grow from those experiences? I've been very lucky that, that I'd played the game. But I think for, for me, it's getting building a relationship with your athletes and they, they do everything they can to play their, their game, footy or basketball, whatever it is. And if they get a you know a, a career-ending injury, they haven't got plan B. It's also about being making sure they've got a plan B and they're good, they're good people so they can get a job and just trying to keep their feet on the ground. So it's... Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. We'll dive straight into it, mate. In, in the heat of an NRL match, what are some of the 
I guess, things that coaches need to take into account when it comes to weighing up, I guess, the data that's being thrown at them, but also their coaching instinct and intuition. How do you think the best coaches sort of weigh up all the information that's thrown at them and, and make a, uh, a call to go with one of them? So that, that's a, that was an interesting question. <clears throat> so when I started in 94 as a high-performance manager, we had four staff, the coach, assistant coach, a football manager, part-time physio, and me, five. Now, and my study, uh, head coach has got 27 staff, three assistant coaches, a sports scientist, a high-performance manager, and and they're all mic'd up at, um, on the data of each on every player. So training's measured, everything's training's measured. So the whole concept of the high-performance manager is to mimic the coach's feelings. So they're thinking about the same time. So ultimately, he knows he should know the resilience and the thresholds of each player for him to make these types of critical decisions. Yeah, that's interesting. So, performance manager's role is to mimic the head coach's sort of feeling, so that obviously they're on the same page. You can only imagine how that how that would help things be work more seamlessly on game day when there's not a lot of time to make these decisions. What What would you say is the best way for head coaches and performance managers that are new to working to, together? To accelerate that process, I guess to get them on the same page, so they're thinking the same way. Well, that was that was my last club. Like Hook come in, and he took five of us away and said, "I like you guys, but I'm going with my own staff and bought his own staff in because he could trust him. He knew them; they knew how to work with each other, and he was ready to pay us out. So normally, when you get a new coach, he takes his own staff with him. And even one of the guys I interviewed, a high performance manager said that it took him three years to get the coach's respect and the coach was a micromanager before that. So that that, that relationship is very important because the high-performance manager, he's got 12 staff himself. So he generally looks after the sports scientist, the strength coach, the wrestling coach, the fitness coach, and he's got to pull them all in together. And that's where it, it is so important that they respect each other, they trust each other, yet challenge each other as well. So, yeah, quite interesting, the whole concept of it all. Yeah, definitely. And where do you think it can go wrong between the dynamic of that, of the head coach and the high-performance manager during, I guess, those three years where they're sort of feeling each other out? Well, this is only one case. That was to get his respect, and then he'd been with the, the head coach then for another 15 years. Yeah, right. Uh, so he was he was a, a new guy on the block, and then the coach took over him. But again, one of the head coaches I, I spoke to in, in my study, I think I've got a quote here somewhere yeah. where, he's, where he said, yeah, head coaches employs a high performance manager based on trust, experience, and his or her leadership qualities. So the quote was, "I trusted someone impeccable. He cared about them. He looked after the blokes. The older you got, the more he cared about you. He got great results, and that is why I like because that's how I feel. I know if I have was a high performance manager, that is what I'd do, and that's the right thing you do. He would never raise his voice. He would wouldn't never yell at anybody. Everything everybody did their work." And that's the type of person I love to have around. That was one of the longest serving coaches we've had in NRL. Yeah, so once once the trust and respect is built built up over that time, it sort of pays dividends later on. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the other thing, one of the others and biggest finding that we had was casual conversations. Casual conversations was the most information gathering aspect of anybody in a club. And then just from my own time, I, I have probably 80 conversations a day. And that could be with the players, that could be with the staff, that could be with the physio, because we want to know everything about the players and the casual conversations. And, and another head coach said he doesn't call anybody into his office. 
and mm. he talks on there and then because there's no hidden agenda they and that's that honesty the real deal and when you look at a game like body language is 55 percent communication and that's research but um when you look at post game you can see that kinship between the coach the real coaches that they do what they say their actions and the players that jump over and cuddling them tipping water over them and having jokes about them and then when you look at the number of head coaches that that happens to that's a minority and you look how long they've been in the game for they're successful because they do care about their players and they they want them to to go well so yeah that's a real real relationship so important and the in terms of like you mentioned not structuring you know having informal chats casual chats and communications through corridor sort of conversations how effective they can be is that uh, very similar for a high performance manager managing his team and, and his connection with the athletes as well as the as the head coach well, or are there different strategies no absolutely absolutely you know we've got a conditioning coach we've got a strength coach we've got a physio and we've got a, a great operations manager that it was an ex-referee it's good because they'll talk to somebody to the physio that they won't tell me and they'll talk to something to the strength coach they won't tell me so we're constantly collaborating and exchanging ideas about what's happening with them all and making sure that they're on track and they're, they're feeling okay. And what about on game day? You know, like coaches are known for, you know, be, having the ability to be able to adapt the strategy on the fly. Do you have some sort of experiences or, or memorable moments where you've noticed the best coaches have that ability and, and what could be the difference between perhaps coaches that are develop, still developing their craft? Is it a reaction thing? Is it collaboration and your connection with your assistant coaches uh, or is it just simply like a coach's eye that takes experience no i tell you what happened out of a worldwide pandemic it was the best three months i've ever had in my life in terms of i had was able to do my study but we'd go to the teams and been with the referees you got they used referees for scrimmaging and stuff but to mm-hmm. watch the coaches work with their players so when you've gotten the head coach and he's a referee in games and and they're getting upset and they're telling them where to go and stuff like that. He really challenges them and he gets to know them and he knows their thresholds and who's going to bust and their resilience levels. So it's it's been a part. And interesting enough, we, we collect data on everything. We get subjective data, objective data. And, he, and, and one of his quotes to me was, well, I'm not being a smart ass here. I've been coaching for X amount of years. I know when someone's not happy. I know when they're sad because I can see it on their face. I walk around and I watch them. He said, I know when someone's fat, I don't need another piece of paper about that either. Uh, yeah. And that's that's the real deal, coaches. They don't sit in this in the office and wait for things to happen. They're in their faces the whole time and their door's open for them so that they have that relationship and they want to keep it simple. A lot of our players, they don't care anything but about their sport. And he's, and this same coach said to me, well, he had one guy come up and he said, hey, coach, I've got to get them, them, them Dexes. What are they? He said, don't worry about it, mate. I'll tell you what weight you got to play it. You get it that weight and I'll be happy. And just numbs it down and just keeps it simple. So, again, they're the real deal coaches where the other ones will say things. And I've been at a game and I've watched the game. The coach says all the right things. But when I'm watching the game, his reserves are facing with their backs to the game. There's something wrong with the culture. Yeah. You know, so you know, can, you, can you trust your players or do you have that relationship? Because you're going to give them... The, the goal, the holy grail, and getting them to play first grade is a day when you've got to drop them as well. So it's, it's a tough gig, and, and I want to do, personally myself, I want to do more research, as we spoke about, on the cognitive levels and relationships, mm-hmm. about the mental side of things that I think we need to learn more about because 
all these psychosocial stressors that these players are faced with and all our teenagers and middle-aged guys are faced with these days are, are really critical in our decision-making. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it'd be a fascinating study to, to get a good understanding of both head coach and high-performance manager, like you said, the amount of conversations that happen on a daily basis and decisions that need to be made quickly. It'd be interesting to yeah, get a better understanding of the fatigue that comes with that, but also but I imagine they'd be really elite with coping with those strategies as well, being in that environment for so long. Do you think for someone that uh, is striving towards being a head coach or perhaps a high-performance manager, are there strategies or things that you can be doing to help prepare you for that, or is it just simply being in the role to get right. that experience? Being in the role is one thing, but I think you need to have some sort of academic qualifications now. And even with the, I'm also on the board of the ASCA, but we've put in leadership modules in our high performance, in our act, uh, level three coaching. And it's been critical marking their papers, their workbooks. They're all just so surprised. And that was the biggest module that they've learned from, you know, emotional intelligence and the need to. And I've got another quote here, but basically what the quote is, Boily, you know, used to be a time where we used to give them three slaps around the head and now you've got to give them three cuddles. And that's exactly the way they are now. You just can't browse on them because you're in trouble. So it's just a, a new world that we've got to adapt to. Like obviously, you've been in the industry and you've seen the shift towards sort of those two different strategies. Why do you think that the demand for, for leadership courses and emotional intelligence courses is, is so much more, I guess, relevant now these days compared to maybe 20 years ago? Um, where did that sort of shift happen? Was there some things that were happening that people weren't happy with the standards or is it because the teams are bigger, like you mentioned, from four staff to 12 to 20 staff? So is it a different environment, do you think, different demands on the role or are there some other things? that? Well, yeah, when you go from having a staff of three or four to 27 staff and 35 players, the role gets a lot bigger. And, and because the game gets faster and now we've got all the sports science and technology You've got more bodies to look after, and the bigger span of control means that you you know you've really you're tied for time, and you know the head coach is the first there and the last to leave at at, at what I'm saying are the real deal clubs. So and societal changes has got that way. You know you've got grassroots players. Everybody gets a trophy. Teachers having trouble because of societal changes, and you know social media, and there's so much information out there that you know we've just got to be across it all. And you mentioned cognitive studies for those that haven't read any papers or might not be aware of what, what all that means. What, what are, what's the interest for yourself in looking into sort of decision-making and cognitive decision-making for, for the athletes, but, but also high-performance managers and head coaches? Yeah, well, look, I, I've been involved in the game for, for 40 years, and, and when I come to the referees, I had no concept of them. They, they were a necessary evil. No, I've got that many res- that much respect for them now because everybody hates them. You know, they, they, they get abused and they've done about 2,000 games before we get here. And we train them hard, but they've still got to, they've got to have that cognitive ability. They're making 1,300 decisions a game. Um, and they're, they're that busy there and they've got the captain's challenge, six again tackles. They've got to count their penalties. They've got to make sure that the guys, they've got to control the game and make it a spectacle for the public. Teams, if they let the teams just do what they want and not play by the rules, then they're going to turn into a, what they'd call a human a shit fight. But they, they've got to really work hard, and they've got got to earn the respect of the players. And the whole concept is the commission makes the rules, the referees have to apply them, and the coaches are trying to exploit them. You know, if you get hit in the head, now go down on the ground, don't get up. 
well, that, that's not really in the in the good nature of the game. But if that's going to give them more time, we get someone sin binned or a penalty. Yeah, you know, that's something that we've got to deal with with the referees. So, yeah, their cognitive ability is unbelievable on remembering things and you know and doing three things at once because the head referees mic'd up to the two touch judges, which will work, and they've got roles to play. They've got a match day coach. They've got the bunker. Yeah, they're just HIA bin, so they're just working the whole time. And what does a typical training week look like, I guess, in season, and how does that compare to pre-season for the referees? So we've got some great strength and conditioning staff here. They work really hard, so we've got referees on different meetings. They've got to run a week. So we've got guys on um, 16 to 18 Ks a week. Other referees have to run up to 26 days a week, but the body's not designed to run backwards. So the head refs are running backwards, and we've got to do a lot of chain work, carbs and things like that. The touch judges work a lot of adductor, adductor, and they might be doing two games a week. Say for a Friday game, then coming back and then flying over to New Zealand for uh, a Sunday game. So they're early flights, time zones, recovery, and they've got to review their own games. So they only... They get three runs a week if they can, or two runs a week, and we're looking at their chronic loads. And then they've got to do a lot of theory and reviews. So they're, they're really, really working hard. And are they like a team? Are they reviewing the, the game together, like all those different positions that they're in and how and sort of judging you know, how they communicated under pressure together, or is it more individually looking at your own specific role and reflecting on that? So each referee, each game referee, we have three involved in each game. So they'll do a post-game review. They'll spend about anywhere from two to three hours reviewing their own game and they go into an hour's review with their coach and they go over any mistakes. In the bunker, they've got coders. They might get three thirty-nine code question marks, whether they did the right thing or whether they didn't, and they might t- do two of those games. And then as a group on a Wednesday, they'll review the whole lot and have theory meetings, bunker meetings, and, and coach athlete meetings. So, yeah, they're, they're really, really under the pump. And, and you mentioned posterior chain work. Are they like the athletes, like sort of doing some extra work, accessory work in the gym to keep themselves, I guess, mitigate injuries? And, and like you said, there's different demands to it with, with the lateral work and some others are running backwards. Uh, how do you sort of take that into account with their program? Is, is everyone following a individual program or is it more a, a group program where they lift together and, and run? together had as a sort of well, they, they do three lifts a week they do a lot of posterior chain work we do a lot of nordics uh, a lot of calf work elastic strength work you know for tendons and muscles and things like that so and in the training programs we make sure they do a lot of referee specific moves which entitles not only running hard but also be tough stuff or they've got cognitive questions got to answer so yep. they'll have game edits and they'll have two teams and they'll just get little snippets and they've got to make sure that they know what the score is by the end of, of about 15 minutes of, of exercise. Or they might get 14 pitches they've got to look at before training session, do the training session, and re- remember all the 14 pitches that they looked at. And I had one guy that was six months later, he knew the 14 from 1 to 14 straight away. That's yeah, yeah. unbelievable, their, their cognitive ability. And is that, you know, that trait quite natural for that referee, or is it something more that he's, you know, he's worked on? to develop to that uh, when a lot of the referees they have to do it by job they've done about 2,000 games before they get to to, to the NRL mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think that's a big space there where you know with all these new rule changes with the with our players are they doing enough cognitive work you know when you get tired and someone's going to clock off and, and 
the good players can say, well, they're going to get tired and, and their heads are down, so they run. You know, I think we need to employ more cognitive players to be really switched on yeah. at, at their level too. I think sometimes we just take it for granted. So that the whole concept of, of rugby league now is, you know, you know Jack Gibson, he was an old coach. I would, you know, we want to make them as big as gorillas, strong as gorillas, fast as gorillas, and we'd like to see them as smart as gorillas. So, yeah, you just can't, you can't be a dummy. You've got to be able to uh, keep switched working, on. switched on the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Keep a step ahead of the uh, competition, that tactical um, side of things. What, with the with the athletes that are listening into that, whether they're basketballs, footballers, yeah, rugby athletes, like at what age do you think you should be starting to take that on? Is it something that you can you can bring to local junior training sessions or do you, is it more something that you should bring in at a more competitive sort of level, do you think? Here's what I can talk to about. I can talk about Craig Bellamy because he presented at our conference last year and yep. when he was living at Portland, his dad taught him, you train hard, you'll get lucky. And that was his whole premise. And he went to the Raiders and trained hard. He got lucky and played first grade. And then he, then when he finished, he stepped, kept working hard and he got lucky and he was assistant coach to, to uh, Wayne Bennett up at the Broncos. And then he was assistant coach, but he did, wasn't doing too much. And then one week, the State of Origin time, Wayne Bennett had to stay with a State of Origin team. He said, okay, here's your chance, Billy Ake. You're coaching this week. So and it was a Friday game, and, and and Craig was really good at it. He said, I didn't even coach him. I turned up on Wednesday, and we had a training session, and we went to down to Campbelltown to play the West Tigers. Next day in the paper, then 21 years later, I'm still coaching the Storm. But he said, if you want to play for the Storm, you got to work hard and get lucky, but you got to care for your players and you got to care for the for the club. And that's you know, team first culture. It's and you know they've been very successful for the whole whole duration. Absolutely, and that team first mentality. What does that look like in terms of actionables? Do you think from it from the sort of athlete's point of view? Well, it, it, it's it's about training when you don't want to train. It's about caring about other players in the team. It's about having a crack in the gym all the time. You know, I don't feel good today. Well, ask those other the 17 players if you can take it easy today. If they say yes, we'll talk about it. <laughs> that was my response. Or you're playing against a guy on the weekend, you think he's lifting 50%. So there's a lot of a lot of things in there that, you, and the reactions about team first, that'd be selfish. That's so important. You just got to keep on top, on top of it. But again, as coaches, uh, we, we've got to lead by example. It's not what we say, it's what we do. And what do you think that looks like from the best coaches in terms of habits, the daily routine? Yeah, well, it is the daily routine. And, and as I said, the, you know, the coaches are in their faces all the time. They're not sitting in their office for everything. While the players are there, they're available and the door's open. It's never closed. And and again, uh, a lot of the ca- coaches don't sit in their office much because they're around walking through the players in the morning, greeting them all, seeing how they're doing. Body language, 55% communication. They're in the physio room, working there, how you feeling? And they're just in their face the whole time. And then, you know, when the players go home, then that's when they've got to get down and do their work. And that's that's kind of where where they're at. You know, if they see if someone's not happy, come on, let's go. What do you mean, let's go? I'll take you out to my farm for the day. You know, so that's a, that's a classic by one of the head coaches. You know, and they've got personal lives they have trouble with. and But that, that's that's not their, their go. They don't bring it to training with them. They're there for the players there and then yeah. that's what happens they build up that relationship with them and then the players will do anything they can to, to please them and the yeah. team first 
And you can see that with Penrith the last few years. They've been good. They keep bringing young kids in, but they keep slapping and having fun. And, you know, Ivan gets all the accolades after winning the grand final again. And uh, it's not just a shake or a thank you. It's like a cuddle. And, yeah, that's the real deal stuff. And those, uh, like you mentioned, the 55% uh, communication through the body language, is that something that leaders, you know, should start to adopt as well if coaches and staff are using it from a you know, effective level of communication and how can leaders be using that, whether it be on the field in, or perhaps in meetings or, or even just from your day-to-day communications? Is that something you've seen with your, your best sort of captains and leadership group players? Yeah, they read people. They're very intuitive. And then, you know, the old myers breed test, your personality traits, if you're intuitive and, you know, you, you, do, you read people and, you know, yeah. and, and quite often I'd come in, I'd be in the gym and someone's had come in. I said, are you happy? And they said, yeah. I said, well, tell your face. It just wasn't happening for him. <laughs> so go back outside and leave the outside and come back in and train. Yeah. That's great. I love that. And you mentioned the evolving sort of landscape and how it's shifted over the years from three slaps, you know, to, to three cuddles. Like what would be some future, whether it be technology or different strategies to communicate that you sort of see? You've mentioned the cognitive space and the research that you'd like to do in that space. And, and perhaps you want to shed more light on that. But what, yeah, from a high performance manager sort of position, where do you sort of see? the advancements in the industry over the next sort of few years? We've got a very Google. You've got people listening to you all the time, so they can just Google something, a question, and get, get answers. So what mm-hmm. happens with that? You know, we've got to use evidence-based stuff, but we've got to, if we can't explain what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we're doing it, and how we're going to do it, we don't deserve our job. And, and as an example with the referees this year, uh, we've got a conditioning coach this year that, we interviewed them after the pre-season and they said it's the hardest they've ever done. But so what they did know, we knew it was coming because you explained it to us. And our guy, Reese Williams, his name, he put the program together and he just put all those together and they knew it was what, the, what was coming. And again, because they're so smart and cognitive, they knew it was coming but, and they were preparing themselves for it. So it's probably the best off-season we've had and, and they're even talking about it today. We just had a one of the guys is retiring, Benny Cummins, and they said, they said, I bet you won't miss next season's preseason. So yeah, they're they're pretty good, and, and I think, and these guys are young coaches that go out coming through, and they're, they're really doing a great job with these referees. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the biggest takeaways so from a, to get to maximise, I guess, the athletic side and building capacity, you need to be able to plan it well and communicate it really clearly so the athletes have clarity and, and once they've got that aspect where they feel like you care for them and that you're communicating it exactly what's going to be done you can get more out of them ultimately and get better uh, results oh yeah yeah you're putting your body on the line like even man when i was playing it was in the 80s but these guys now when they hit you know and they're making 30 tackles a game it's just jaw breaking you know neck breaking it's just you know it's just so so hard for them now, and they've got to get back up. Yeah, so we're asking the world for them, and even with the referees where they get sleep deprivation and travel and, you know, no thank you when they walk off. I've been at the Dragons game, and they've, they've won by 30 points, but they still get booed when they walk into the tunnel. <laughs> They're asking a lot. So, yeah, we, we need to give them everything we can to support them, and, and they respect that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, very good. And then moving over, before we move into sort of the last few questions, Boyley, is there anything on the topic in terms of decision-making for high-performance managers and coaches that you want to uh, discuss just to wrap up the, the topic? 
Uh, a couple of colleagues I used to work with in that, they, they feel that we haven't caught up with technology yet, you know, with the interpret- interpretation of it. And some people think it's going to go to artificial intelligence. They're even putting a accelerometer in the ball, trying to test it to see, you know, where that's following the ball around and all that. But, yeah, some of the players think they've, they've done, I've done nine and a half Ks, I've had a great game. And then the high-performance manager's got to explain to him, yeah, nine and a half Ks, but you missed three tackles and your effort levels weren't when we needed them. Tommy Travojevic is down one end of the field and you're still up at the other end of the field. That's not how it all works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another guy who's, who's played for Australia and he's a high-performance manager, the coach said, I think they've got to get fitter. And he said, listen, coach, they're fit enough. What about teaching them better skill? Because they're missing six tackles and they make, you have to get fitted because they're missing the tackles because of their technique. So a lot of these things are, and I think that's a good thing about it too, is with coaches, you've got to challenge them. And we all need to be challenged as coaches because that's how you're going to get better. And, and that's what we encourage, especially with our team we have with the referees. We, we challenge each other all the time. So there's no decisions that, that I make without talking to my staff and I respect them for it. Mm. Yeah, so it's all open and honest conversations, everything's laid out, but then once the decision made, sort of everyone's on board. Yeah, 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 we, we come up and, you know, if they think it's a better thing to do, well, yeah, well you guys have been here, you know, about refereeing and, yeah, let's go with that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're, we're looking at all angles. Going back to your career, mate, who were some strong influences, mentors, if you like, from a strength conditioning sort of high performance management <laughs> point of view? Oh, there, there's countless of them, but I've got a list I've put together. Ashley Jones, he was my first mentor. I was just finishing rugby league and, you know, he's starting in Australia. He's been with the All Blacks. And Dan Baker, he's been a mentor and friend for a long time. Lionel Potter, uh, Lionel Potter was in jail for 14 years. But he taught me about life and not giving things to people. He was so humble and we'd go on trips away. And uh, he said, come on, boy, let's not become institutionalised. We did Alcatraz together and uh, we travelled all over the world. John Mitchell. Trevor Clark, Sophia Nymphus was my um, supervisor and she's always been a, a mentor for me. Not a very big stature, but certainly a, an athlete and a, and a great lecturer and, and coach. The Australian Strength and Conditioning Association has been fantastic uh, in terms of you've got to mentor somebody and you've been through the system yourself. I mentored you um, mm-hmm. and you've got to keep mentoring and give something back. But just the, the conferences that we go over the UK, over in America, Hawaii, yeah, it, it's just been amazing. So yeah, I think we, we're going okay, not just in, in sport, but the athletes that we have, you know, track and field athletes. And yeah, it's just an amazing journey. And what about in your work life? Do you have uh, pet peeves, anything that makes you angry, either on the job or from the industry, strength traffic industry? Traffic. Yeah. I've been, yeah. been travelling four hours in the car for 42 years. I travel 100 k's here and 100 k's back most days. And if I get the traffic, it really peeves me off. Yeah, that that would peeve anyone off four hours in the car. What about on the flip side, more on a positive note, favourite way to spend a day off? I love surfing and time with the family and friends. Yeah, I live close to the beach down the south coast of New South Wales and you grab me board, go over there and, and just go for a surf. It's, it's a, a great pastime, even at my age. Long board or short board? I've gone long at seven foot now. I've gone from six six to seven foot. So yeah, still get out of most of the bit. Get washed up in the rocks a few times. A good fun. And we're, we're shooting this recording for those listening to the the podcast rather than the live. Is you know, late August two thousand twenty three. What's on the horizon for you, Boyley? What are you excited about for the rest of the year? 
Uh, I'm looking forward to the finish of the NRL, see how, how what team wins. It's been, there's a wide variety of teams that can get there and yeah, I'm 16 and out on this cognitive referees, coaches, high performance managers and players. So it's, it's going to be an interesting journey for the next four or six years, maybe not just yeah. this year. Yeah, massive. I love that. So, so it was your thesis that you did on the on the subject, and now you're going to dive a little bit deeper. Tell us about that. What what, what are you interested to find out about, or what are you curious about in terms of that topic uh, that you want to research on it some more? Yeah. So the big thing is even doing a master's of research is tough. I, you know, I, I wanted to quit. You know, because you just know what, don't know what you're doing. But mm-hmm. with this one, I'm going to with my eyes open. I really want to find out and uh, and and help. Help, help the game and help the referees and, and pathways and things like that. The more we understand about them, the better the game will be. And I think a lot of people playing any sport, if they don't want a career or anything like that, they want to play sport, well, it's going to keep them off the street. So I think it, it'll be a, a great opportunity to do something and, and learn along the way myself. 100%. Yeah, great cause. Um, th- thank you for uh, sharing that. And it's a great insight and looking forward to reading the research. Um, uh, for those that want to follow up with some questions, mate, where, where's the best place to get in contact? Uh, you, I, you can get me on LinkedIn or just David Wayne Boyle at hotmail.com. Yep, and then I'll, the link. I'll we'll have the links in the show notes for those listening in. And um, yeah, thank you, Billy, for jumping on. I really appreciate you um, sharing with us some stories over your, your career, but also some insights into what it takes to be either a Hopfords manager, Hopfords athlete, and also uh, an understanding of what goes on with their head coaches. Uh, from a mental sort of cognitive point of view in decision making so really appreciate it mate and yeah looking forward to everything else you got going on and the rest of the season in the nrl as well thank you and congratulations on your career too jack you've come a long way since we met years and years ago i have yeah you've got me on a good path i appreciate it <laughs> thanks mate thanks for listening thank you all right thanks for everyone that tuned in our next live chat is with jeremy hickmans and blake duncan that's 4 30 p.m 6th september which is next week, so I look forward to seeing you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or, through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at 
at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish... Back then, when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and, yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah there's so many people like great people out there knowledgeable people to learn off and there's plenty more where that came from if you would like to learn more then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes thank you for listening to the prepare like a pro podcast if you like this episode it'd be a massive help if you could like follow rate give a review or even share with your mates the show is recorded in melbourne australia be sure to follow our instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest if you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.